Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode of Reading Women is brought to you by the House of Chanel. For Gabrielle Chanel, reading was a refuge which allowed her to invent her own destiny right from childhood. Literature became a passion she shared with the love of her life, Boy Capel, and her friends like Cocteau Colette, Pierre Riverdi, and Max Jacob. She helped the authors she admired without them knowing. She had the story of her life told by Paul Morand, Louise de Villemorin, and Michel Dion. She read for inspiration and then became an inspiration herself. Watch the film Gabrielle Chanel and Literature at InsideChanel.com. Hello, I'm Kendra Winchester, and this is Reading Women, a podcast inviting you to reclaim half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women. Today, I'm talking to Meredith McCarroll, one of the editors of Appalachian Reckoning, a region response to Hillbilly Elegy, which is out now from West Virginia University Press. For a full transcript of our conversation, check out the episode show notes or head over to readingwomenpodcast.com and make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss a single episode. So today we have a special bonus episode for you. I was thrilled to be able to talk to Meredith McCarroll, whose work I have uh, appreciated and been a huge fan of, and so it was a delight to be able to talk to her today about all things Appalachia. Now, a couple years ago, Autumn and I interviewed Elizabeth Catt about her book, What You're Getting Wrong About Appalachia, in which she discusses all of the problematic things around J.D. Vance's memoir, Hillbilly Elegy. So I won't rehash all of those things that we talked about with Elizabeth Catt. I will link that episode down in the show notes. Uh, But this interview with Meredith is a thematic part two to that. So we've acknowledged that hillbillyology is problematic, but now what? And I really appreciated the positivity that Meredith brought to this conversation, which was very encouraging. We recorded this episode the day before the 2020 election, and I must admit, I was pretty anxious about what was going to happen and if there would be a repeat of the conversation about Appalachia that happened after the 2016 election. I didn't know what was going to happen with the release of the film version, Hillbilly Elegy, which was scheduled to go out in late November and what that would look like. But I have never (laughs) been happier to be so wrong in that there are so many incredible Appalachian writers and just media people from the region and also Appalachian people who live outside the region who reviewed this movie and are speaking up about how problematic the memoir and the movie are uh, in our perspective of Appalachia. All of these chorus of voices, I think, continue this idea that Meredith McCarroll and Anthony Harkins are working on with Appalachian Reckoning of presenting a chorus of voices from Appalachia to point out that no singular voice can speak for an entire region. And I really appreciated that. And I found this interview, this conversation with Meredith incredibly thought-provoking. 
on spending our energy being pro-Appalachia instead of anti-J.D. Vance. And I think that was very encouraging as we move forward um, from this point of discussions around hillbillyology and moving forward to supporting the region in the various ways that we can. So what I'm going to do um, is link a bunch of resources in the show notes, including other podcasts that focus on Appalachia, like Black in Appalachia, as well as Appodlachia. And you can go check those out. They're pretty fabulous, I must say. And also, I will link our interviews with Appalachian uh, women from around the region down in the show notes as well. So you can go check those out. And recently, I actually started a Read Appalachia bookstagram. And I will admit, I've spent way too many nights uh, not being able to sleep and scrolling through the internet trying to find more Appalachian media and different things. And I was on Bookstagram and I thought, hey, I cannot find a Appalachian focused bookstagram anywhere. Why don't I start one? And so I have. So if you're interested and uh, getting most, you know, up-to-date reading on different things that I've been doing with Appalachian literature and writing, um, definitely go check that out. All of these resources will be linked in the show notes. Um, and also Meredith McCarroll gives some in her discussion throughout the interview. And so I will link those as well. All right. So I just want to say thank you so much for listening and I hope you enjoy this conversation that I had with the wonderful Meredith McCarroll. Welcome to the podcast, Meredith. I am so excited to finally be able to have you on the show. I am so excited to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Um, well, as many of the listeners know already, I am from Appalachia. And so I made a little game plan for myself when I heard that a certain movie was going to be coming out. <laughs> um, and so we are going to be talking today about your work and your writing, but also Appalachian Reckoning, which the subtitle is A Region Response to Hillbillyology, which I feel definitely just describes, you know, how we feel about it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but first, I want to talk about you and the work that you do. So for our listeners who may not be as familiar with um, the things that you write about, um, would you just be able to describe it for them? Sure, I'll do my best. So I have a background in um, working on representations of whiteness in African-American literature and film. But I was born and raised in Appalachia. And always thought that that wasn't really a very interesting thing to write about because I thought I was more, you know, I was like, well, I'm really interested in thinking about power and race and representation. And so I could never possibly write about Appalachia. And so it really wasn't until I finished my PhD in African American literature and film and had this this way of thinking about text, this critical whiteness studies approach to thinking about text, that I turned that approach to looking at regional studies and looking at representations of Appalachia. And we can talk more about how this happened, but it definitely was, it was kind of personal. It was about my own experiences of making my way through the world as an academic and seeing the ways that I had been um, stereotyped. And I didn't even realize that I was being stereotyped. So my first book is called Unwhite, Appalachia, Race, and Film. And in that book, I take a critical race theory approach to looking at the types of figures that exist in representations of Appalachia. 
in Hollywood cinema primarily. And so I'm definitely influenced by people who've come before me, both within Appalachian studies, like Jerry Williamson, who has written about the the portrayals of Appalachian people in movies, but I was also really influenced by people like Donald Bogle, who writes about different types of um, characters in African, different representations of African Americans. And so he writes about how if you look at, you know, hundred years of African American film, so many of those films, like the, the different characters fall into a few different types. And so I took that approach to look at Appalachian films to to think about what types emerge in Appalachian cinema and um, yeah and make the make the argument that is a little little complicated about um, how all of the people in Appalachian movies are well I say all of them almost all of them are shown as phenotypically white but they're also in this position as outsiders and so I use this term unwhite to think about how race and power are functioning in movies and the ways that representations of place really matter. So that's my first book. And then I was, I was really working on a collection of essays about voice and accent. I had written a piece about my own accent and the ways that I kind of learned to hide my accent once I got, once I was in college and then in graduate school. And so I'd written an essay there and I was doing a collection of essays with other people on, on voice and and Appalachia. And that merged with this project that Tony Harkins was doing that was directly addressing hillbilly elegy. And so what came together were these kind of two, two halves of a book that when they came together, I think became something I think it's a little bit magical what happened in that collection, but that became Appalachian Reckoning, a region response to Hillbilly Elegy, which I co-edited. And that recently won, I believe, is it an American Book Award? It did win an American Book Award. Yes. Very exciting. So congratulations. I was very excited to to see that, um, having spent last year slowly reading and annotating it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and just being able to see the region respond and it to be recognized in that way. But you mentioned writing um, a piece about your own accent. Um, so you are from Appalachia. Where in Appalachia are you from? So I'm from Western North Carolina. So the mountainous part of North Carolina, which is in the Southern Appalachian. So the Southern United States. I'm from near Asheville, North Carolina. So I uh, went to the mountains of North Carolina this summer, and so it was great to see a different part of Appalachia um, than from where I'm from, which is Appalachian, Ohio, and northern Kentucky. Yeah, it's always lovely to learn more about the different kinds of Appalachian culture out there, and that's something that I really appreciated about Appalachian Reckoning is the way that so many different kinds of people had the opportunity to contribute to this collection to give a a really a, a huge range of perspectives, which I think goes to the idea that no single perspective can be a voice um, for a region. Yeah, you you just said so much there that is really <laughs> important to us. So it's so it's so amazing to create something and then to hear what you what you really hoped would get across to hear that echoed back so that was amazing to hear you talk about that just now because 
you know, when you talk about the area where you were raised, we were raised in really different kinds of places, I bet. And so the, I think that that's part of what is so important, but also so tricky in talking about Appalachia is that, I don't know if it's human nature or, or what, but I think that there's a tendency to just kind of want to draw boundaries and define places and people and belief systems and all of this stuff. And, um, and you can maybe do that in a more micro way, but you, you certainly cannot define Appalachia. You know, I, I'm sure that we had some shared experiences, but yeah, I mean, uh, Appalachian, Ohio and Western North Carolina look really different. They probably feel really different. They have different uh, economic systems in some ways. Um, they have different, you know, there's so much that's different there. And when you're talking about a 13 state region, it's a little bit crazy to imagine that anybody is going to try to speak for that region. Um, and that's why I think it's so important to have a collective of voices um, rather than one person claiming to speak for the region. So a couple years ago, uh, we had Elizabeth Cat on and she talked about what you're getting wrong about Appalachia and described, I mean, she wrote a whole book on it. So describing a summary is, <laughs> I imagine, difficult, but I, she described the basics of why hillbillyology is harmful because it leans into so many different stereotypes and I'm thinking about the entire book at this point and I'm like how can you so you can't even summarize it Kendra <laughs> no well that I mean that book by Elizabeth Cat is so brilliant because you know I mean it, it's such a it's such a great title because it's really clear what she's doing but she is so so smart and she's looking at it in so many intricate complex ways that just are mind-blowing, even for people who are from the region or have studied the region. I think everyone learns something from that book because she's just such a such a student of history and looks at it from so many different ways and is, is able to take apart all of the things that are going on in Vance's book that simplify something that is very complicated. Yeah. And I really loved um, her piece in Appalachian Reckoning as well. She's actually the person that recommended it to me um, because she's like, hey, you know, I'm working on this thing for this, um, you know, collection of essays. And so I really love being able to see her perspective, but also the perspective of a wide range of people. For you, what is the thing that you saw coming up again and again with, um, with people's dissent against hillbillyology? Yeah. Well, I am a I'm a scholar of narrative. I'm a scholar of literature and film. And so what I was most paying attention to, I mean, there were so many people writing from so many different perspectives, you know, looking really from looking at voting, looking at politics, looking at um, labor rights. I mean, there were so many different ways that people were looking at looking back at um hillbilly elegy and challenging it what i was most interested in was the narrative perspective i think so and and i think that that is that's what i tended to notice that so many people were were focusing on as well so i i felt like so hillbilly elegy came out in the summer of 2016 and you know it was uh 
talked about as this memoir. And I think a lot of people from the region read it. And I, I know that a lot of people from within the region, you know, they there were parts of it that were familiar to them, whether they're, you know, they had a, a mama or a mima or a granny that was similar to the, the figure that's so crucial to J.D. Vance in that book, or they had an uncle that was, you know, similar, that they had been around poverty and uh, drug abuse. And, you know, there were parts of it that I know really felt familiar to people. And that, to me, I think is part of the the beauty of memoir, is that you can tell your own story and there are moments that will resonate with other people, even if their stories are very different than yours. And so the memoir part of the book is not the thing I have an issue with. I don't think it's a particularly well-written memoir. Um, and I think if it were just a memoir, then it would definitely not have gotten the attention that it got. So I think that if he had stuck to writing memoir, then that would have been one thing. But what he what he does and what drew so much critique from people that I was noticing is that he shifts from first person singular to first person plural. So it ceases to become a memoir when he starts writing about we. Um, It's fine for him to say, I experienced this. I was a victim and I worked really hard and got myself out of it. That's a story he can choose to tell. But when he begins to say, we don't need help, we got ourselves into this mess and we'll get ourselves out, which is something that he explicitly says, that's what really, uh, that's what really bothered a lot of readers. I think that they felt like he was trying to um, speak on behalf of the region at that point. And so it was partly just the audacity of that move, but I think also the ends to which he was making that move bothered a lot of people. It was really evident to a lot of readers that he is doing something um, in terms of, well, he's, he's making a political move in that shift from I to we and what he says from that we perspective. So that was the thing that I really noticed and paid a lot of attention to was how you, this isn't, you can't write a memoir of a region. Um, that's, it's not a genre. You can, <laughs> you can write a memoir about your own experience. You could maybe try to write a memoir of your family. And boy, that sounds dangerous because you're, you're inviting, um, the more people that you're trying to speak for, the more people, uh, you're, you're potentially going to misrepresent. And so for him to take on uh, a memoir of a region, it's just, um, was bold and invited a lot of critique. And, you know, we're recording this the day before the uh, presidential election. And it, you know, during this pro during the whole campaigning of, of this summer and into the fall, I, I keep thinking about 2016 when this came out, because I remember picking it up and reading it um, before the election. But after the election, a lot of people, both, you know, people who are both politically conservative and people who were politically liberal, both found something that they liked in Hillbilly Elegy. And I saw this all over, you know, media and the news, etc. 
um, and then proceeded a lot of parachute journalism. So can you describe what it was like to watch that process, to have this book come out, and then after the election, see it as held up as an example of why what happened did? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I mentioned that my background is in looking at um, African-American literature and film, and therefore I've I've studied and thought a lot about African-American culture, especially in the 20th century. And what happened with this book and the way that it solved um, a problem for people and answered a question for people reminded me very much of what happened with the Moynihan Report, which is it's like blaming, in that case, blaming African-Americans for their own poverty. And in this case, I think Vance is blaming Appalachians for their own poverty, for, as he says, for getting themselves in the situation that they've gotten themselves into. And um, and it's it's so weird for me to say Appalachians. That's not a that's not a phrase that I use because I don't know what an Appalachian is. I know people who live in different parts of Appalachia and identify as like being from Southern Appalachia or, you know, I mean, it's, it's not, uh, it's not a voting block. And so the way that it was treated as a voting block and that he was called in as the savvy person who was happy to position himself and talk about it, um, as a voting block and to explain the way that hillbillies are was, it was really infuriating as I'm, is I'm someone who deeply identifies as being from the Appalachian Mountains and that that, that is my cultural identity. And I am, you know, a, a really liberal college professor and he's talking about all, you know, and, and I can think of dozens of people from the region, just from my small town who are doing all kinds of different things, you know, who are, fundraisers and doctors and, and, you know, whatever, doing all these different things. And he's talking about voters in Appalachia as if they are all really stubborn Scots-Irish fighting coal miners who are more Um, you know, who love family, but they're broken in these certain ways, just like the way that he was talking about Appalachia was, was infuriating, both because it was a crazy thing to be talking about um, a region as huge and diverse as Appalachia as one thing, but also just seeing the way that he was blaming people in poor parts of Appalachia, in coal mining towns, for the, or in towns where the industries have left, he, the ways that he was blaming those people for their own poverty. And it, and the, the, I guess the other thing is that you mentioned this kind of parachute journalism that has happened time and time again in the region where people, you know, drop in and generally capture the story that they already knew they were going to capture. So they come in with a predetermined outcome and, you know, get get some interviews, tell a story, and then they take off. And the way that he just so enabled that by by scapegoating Appalachia. And I think that, you know, great writers have 
and great thinkers have come after that that fall of 2016 and have looked at data in more complicated ways and have debunked the idea that it was you know of, of who who voted for Trump and have looked at you know Tanahasi Coates has this great piece in the Atlantic called the first white president where he he says it's white people across uh, class lines who voted for Trump. So it's the people, you know, the the women in Long Island as well as the the men in West Virginia or whatever that that voted for Trump. And so when you start to see that, you realize that a certain story was being told for a certain reason. And I think that that reason was blaming blaming poor whites as if they were uneducated, and that's why they made this choice. I remember seeing those pieces, and um, I married a Californian, and uh, and he's a suburbia boy from you know outside San Francisco. So we come from almost completely different worlds, which is always exciting. And so we ended up starting this whole conversation, like group family discussion, and I was kind of like, um, you know, they're giving resources for other kinds of things. And I remember getting into an argument with a extended family member about about um I think Nancy Eisenberg did a review of Hillbilly Elegy or something mm-hmm. in the New York Review of Books or something mm-hmm. and I was like no that other book mentioned you need to read that one yeah and just having this whole conversation and the guy ended up saying something along the lines of well if these people are holding on to whatever values these are why are they why are they choosing to be poor and mm-hmm. I cannot, I was like, we had this whole conversation and you obviously already knew what you were going to think at the end of this. Like, why Mm -hmm. did I kind of waste my time? And so to me, it felt like the journalists were having those kinds of conversations with their pieces of just saying, this is what we, I, you know, we thought here is the scapegoat that we have chosen. And this is the piece we're going to write. It was just agony just watching and like feeling like if you said anything you were like shouting into a void Mm -hmm. yeah I think it was a really frustrating time to see those same stories be told over and over but what's so important to remember is that what emerged um, from all different areas was you know really this this I guess, grassroots kind of response, people started debunking this from so many different perspectives. So one of the first people that I read was Dwight Billings, who is has a piece in our book. And another one was by Bob Hutton, who has a piece in our book. People just, you know, publishing things on, on blogs and, you know, kind of random places across the internet that, that showed that there was this, a kind of groundswell of, I guess, just a movement of comp- to complicate this narrative. And the way that it happened to me is so inspiring. And it was his voice was challenged by so many other voices saying, no, that's not my experience. This isn't right. This isn't, you know, here's what you're getting wrong about Appalachia as Elizabeth Cat framed it. And so the fact that all of these voices emerged to complicate Vance's and, you know, some of them were furious and some of them 
were, you know, just driven more by logos and fact and wanting to correct what he was getting wrong. And that has happened. It makes me think about a moment in the 19, early 1970s when Apple Shop was formed, which was, is an organization that um, empowers Appalachian folks to tell their own stories and to make films and to do all of this creative work and uh, storytelling and collecting stories. And that came about after another moment of this parachute journalism that happened when Johnson launched the war on poverty from Appalachia. And, you know, there were these certain images that that newscasters wanted to show and they came into literally the same towns and captured the same houses and the same uh, roads and, and told the same story, like you were saying, that it was kind of predetermined. And there was a there was a response that was a natural response that happened in 1970 and that I think happened after the success of uh, Hillbilly Elegy that these, uh, it, that kind of, um, if you're paying attention, it really corrected that one, that one voice. And that happened really naturally, or I guess organically is what I meant. What I mean is that it, it emerged from all of these different areas, all of these different writers and these activists coming together to say, no, that's, that's not, that's not the only story to be told from this region. And that's something that I really appreciated because until, honestly, until like I was, see, a year before Hillbilly Elegy came out, I I didn't even really consider myself um, Appalachian. I I moved to the South. I moved to the upstate of South Carolina for college. And I was, had a really intense amount of culture shock. It was very open, the landscape in my mind. (laughs) And, you know, you go through that process as a college student um, but reading Vance's book and seeing parts of it I identified with as in feeling like you don't fit in, feeling like there's something culturally that you're missing, like you're speaking a different language, those things I saw in it. But then as you keep reading, there's obviously so many other problems with it. So when I saw voices speaking up, I started reading their books and really digging into this part of my heritage and understanding that. And I think that like you were saying, that's a huge, my journey is, is a huge journey that many of us uh, in my generation have had through this whole conversation about Appalachia um, and hillbillyology. Yeah, I think so. I think like finding a way to claim that part of your identity is really important. And it's hard to do when other people are defining what Appalachia means. It makes it less it, it makes it too simplistic and it also makes it less appealing. I think that there are a lot of reasons that people flee not only the geographic region, but flee the identity when, if you don't have a counter voice there to complicate this one pretty negative voice or the, the really, I think, damaging images of representation of the region that you see in TV and film. So we are now four years removed from when the book came out and now the movie is coming out in a few weeks here Mm -hmm. also tied up again with another election what are some things that you are concerned about with the release of the movie at this particular 
time in history? Is there anything that you are just keeping an eye out for as you watch the dialogue around this movie kind of and the story come up again? You know, the thing I actually am concerned about is making sure that we don't focus so much on J.D. Vance that we miss bigger things happening around us. So that might seem funny because I definitely have, you know, I've gone on record. I'm on record right now. It's like challenging the way in which he wrote, particularly the we part of his book. But one of the things that I see that that is entertaining, but also a little worrisome to me is how how angry people are at him and how angry people are at Ron Howard for making this movie and that it's such an expensive film and so much money could be spent in different ways. And those I think are are legitimate questions is thinking about systems and structures that support a film that is probably going to be rather stereotypical and, and narrow in its focus. But I think that if we get distracted by kind of pitching a fit about this movie or about J.D. Vance, I think we might miss a lot of other things that are happening around us. So the movie has been made. I think probably it will not do the damage that the book did in a certain way. And what I mean by that is, you know, every once in a while there's a movie that's set in the mountains and it use, it relies on the same types and it reinforces those um, images and it does damage. I believe that it does damage to see, you know, screaming women in these kind of ridiculous accents and a heroic boy who gets to leave because of his own hard work. I think that that does some damage in the world. But I think that what does more damage are, you know, uh, systems and structures of oppression that rely on keeping people in their places and rely on it's the it's the structures that use those stereotypes to continue to do mountaintop removal or to justify destruction of places and extractive industries that's who's actually that that's who we need to be paying attention to i think that this is one cog in that machine but i don't think that this is the machine i don't think that i think it's it's misguided angst to place all of that on jd vance or on ron howard or on this this movie if that makes sense. Yeah, it's like they are just symptoms of a much bigger problem. So instead of focusing on these symptoms and spending our energy there, we should spend our energy on trying to address the bigger problems at play. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, I think about when, it, I think if you if you read the book, Appalachian Reckoning, then you understand that we have what I think is powerful about the book is that there are so many different voices and some of them are angry, but many of them are not angry. And the majority of the narratives that are in the book, whether they're poetry or memoir, they're stories that aren't even directly addressing hillbilly elegy. They're just other stories from the region and their mere presence kind of drown out the, um, the power of, of one voice 
or at least it creates, I guess the language we use in the introduction of the book is it creates a chorus rather than having one person who's, who's stepping up to the mic over and over. But when we were working on this collection, Tony Harkins and I were really worried about making a book that was antagonistic. That was not our goal. And Roger May, who is a brilliant photographer and directs the project uh, Looking at Appalachia, which is a photography collective that he started um, several years ago. When we asked him to be involved in this project to bring on some of the photographs from Looking at Appalachia, we had we had a good hard phone conversation where he said, I don't want to be part of anything that's mean spirited. And that was exactly the language that Tony and I needed at that moment. And we could easily confirm, no, no, that's not what this project is about. This isn't an anti JD Vance book. This is a pro Appalachia book. And, um, and there's space for J.D. Vance to tell his story, but there's got to be space for all of these other people to tell their stories as well. And that's that's what I think worries me um, about the focus on one person is that it's a distraction from what's going on, um, maybe what he's a part of, maybe what he's empowering, but... Um, we're missing what's actually doing the damage if we're just focusing on um, one small um, part of that. I really like that, that when you said it is not an anti-J.D. Vance book, but it's a pro-Appalachia book, which uh, we often talk about centering something and, and what the power in that mm-hmm. has. And I think that really centers Appalachia instead of centering yeah. Vance. Yeah, it's... It's true. We we struggled with the the title of this book because um, the title is Appalachian Reckoning and the subtitle is A Region Responds to Hillbilly Elegy, as you mentioned earlier. And it was important that we have the hillbilly elegy in there because we knew that that would help people understand what the book was about and and what had given really what was the catalyst for the book. That was an important part. But we really were having such a hard time. Some of the titles that we had were more antagonistic or centered Vance and centered Hillbilly Elegy too much. And the book itself, as an as an um, entire collection, I think really works to decenter Vance and to center. I don't know what the center would be. I guess the center ends up being Appalachia, but there is no center, and that's kind of the point. There's um, there's a real complicated, I hope that there's a complicated image of the region um, that when you finish reading this, you don't feel like you've figured out Appalachia. You just know that you haven't figured out Appalachia, maybe. Yeah, it's like a starting place is often what I call it when I pitch it to people. Uh, mm-hmm. Because you include so many great artists and writers and who do a wide range of things. And that way, an anthology can introduce you to their work. And then you can go off and look at what projects they're involved in. I found so many great resources just by reading more work by the contributors in the book, which is yeah a really fabulous benefit. Yeah, definitely. And we were we were so lucky to have just incredible people 
I mean, every piece, every photograph, every poem that's in there just adds so much. And, and we're drawing from a really deep well. Um, we were really lucky to have such incredible contributors. All right. So we've, we've talked about all sorts of books today. Um, but is there something that has come out maybe more recently, um, a book that you would like to recommend to our listeners that's about maybe anything, really anything you like, film, Appalachia, just something you've been enjoying reading um, over the last few months? Absolutely. I have been really excited to read so many new things that have come out of the region. Um, So one book that I would recommend is called Even As We Breathe, which is by Annette Sonuk-Clapsaddle. And it's her first um, novel. Uh, It is set in Western North Carolina and is, I won't say too much about it, but it tells the perspective, it's from the perspective of a young Cherokee boy who's working in Asheville. And um, she is um, a member of the Eastern Band Cherokee, and it's a fantastic novel that I would recommend. Um, I would also recommend Anything by David Joy, who is a novelist, um, who has who has three books out now and um, his most recent book is called when these mountains burn and this is a book that is really situated it happens to be really situated in place and that's part of why i love it but it actually i think could take place in a lot of different towns a lot of different um I don't know if it could take place in another region, actually. I think it is particularly Appalachian in in certain ways. But it's really a a beautiful, fraught story of um, contemporary uh, opioid crisis in in Appalachia. And it's told from several different perspectives. And uh, it's just, it's beautifully written. Let's see what else. Uh, another, another piece, another collect, a short story collection that I love um, that just came out. I'm realizing I'm not sure how to say it on the radio <laughs> or on the podcast. So Leah Hampton's short story collection F Face is is really is great. And all three of these books, I'm so happy to say, three books that came out this year. So those are some things that I've read recently that I that I have really loved. And they're all from North Carolina, is that right? They are. Yeah. Yeah, they're all from actually really close to where I'm from. Uh, they're all from Western North Carolina or living in Western North Carolina currently. It's funny because everyone has been telling me to read David Joy's latest book. And so I ended up getting a copy. It's so I was like... Yes, I will read this because everyone, everyone I talk to from Appalachia is talking, is telling me to go pick it up. So I will listen. (laughs) Uh, I think that he is a really important voice um, in part because of the way it might, it's kind of a strange description, but I don't know anyone who listens as well as David Joy. And that makes him, I think, an incredible writer because he pays deep attention and he really takes things in, both as a friend 
and a human, but also as a writer, I think he's just collecting and really, he just cares really deeply and that comes across in his work. Yeah, I'm excited. Anyway, um, so well, thank you so much for recommending those books and I'll be sure to link them in the show notes. Thank you so much, Meredith, for coming on the show and talking to me um, about your work. Uh, I greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a joy. So I'd like to say a huge thank you to Meredith McCarroll for talking with me about the anthology Appalachian Reckoning, which is out now from West Virginia University Press and will of course be linked in our show notes. So I will include links to Meredith McCarroll's website and social media in the show notes. So you can definitely go check those out and get updates on the work that she is doing. I'd also like to say a special thank you to our patrons whose support makes bonus episodes like this very much possible. You can find Reading Women at readingwomenpodcast.com and on Instagram at thereadingwomen. You can find me on social media at K as in Kite, D as in Dylan, Winchester. Thanks so much for listening.